Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things Substrate, Polkadot, and Web3. The information provided is for informational purposes only and is subject to change without notice. This podcast session does not constitute, either explicitly or implicitly, any provision of services or products by Parity Technologies, also known as Parity. All statements, including forward-looking statements made regarding companies, securities, or digital assets are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Parity or guest speakers and are not endorsements by Parity of any company or recommendations by Parity to buy, sell, or hold any security or digital asset. Parity and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or digital assets or issuers that are discussed. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to another exciting episode of the Relay Chain podcast. We are taking a little departure from the regular format uh, this time, and we're talking with the Parity legal team. So I have with me Chrissy and Elisa from the Parity legal team, and we're going to dig into all issues legal. Uh, you probably just came off of hearing the lovely disclaimer that we have at the beginning of the episodes. The legal team helps do these legal things, and we're going to talk about why these things exist. But I'd like to uh, just introduce Chrissy and Elisa to the cast. Hello, folks. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having us. We're very uh, privileged to be included. And, uh, you know, we can talk a little bit about lawyering and all that entails in Web3. Yeah, thanks so much for yeah making us part of this. We're really excited and uh, looking forward to your questions. <laughs> Jordan, if anyone can't uh, distinguish our voices, I'm the one with the Southern accent and she's the <laughs> one with the lovely German accent. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Chris with the Southern accent, Elisa with the German accent. <laughs> awesome. All right, let's dig right into it. And let's just start, you know, very high level. Like, how did you lovely lawyer folk find your way into the, the techie, nerdy Web3 industry? Uh, my personal career journey in tech uh, actually started in Web2. Uh, so I used to work uh, within the trust and safety department at Google. And I uh, was uh, on a day-to-day -day basis uh, reviewing existing and upcoming policies um, that could affect the Web2 industry. Um, it was really interesting and I really enjoyed the work. However, I was also confronted in that job with like several trust and safety considerations that affect the current state of the web. And I've just always been someone who thinks very like critically about the status quo and how we can improve things. So this kind of made me start thinking about uh, yeah issues such as trust, security and privacy that were also currently debated in the society in general. Um, and I was like thinking about how we could improve this and how we could address concerns and also flaws in the current system. And yeah, and then I came across this this new Web3 uh, movement who actually just focuses on, on these uh, kind of key considerations, um, trust, security, privacy, and how we can work uh, out a way um, to make it better in the future. Um, so yeah, I was really keen to, to become a part of, of this movement and um, also impact or have an impact on the way we manage these issues. Yeah, and that's that's how I came across um, Parity and uh, was really thrilled uh, when I got the job and uh, was able to become part of this movement. So my, my plan worked out, I would say. Right. And I uh, have a, a slightly different story in that I was 
looking for a break after 20 years of working. Um, and the last job I was in, I was chief operating officer and general counsel for the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And that was an amazing opportunity to work with a former UK prime minister doing something that you know was pioneering. No prime minister had ever gone into charitable work, not-for-profit work and commercial work as he had done. And eight and a half years was long enough. We had just come out of lockdown. I had a bunch of personal pressures. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take six months off. And then I got a call from a recruitment agent who was like, Chrissy, this amazing opportunity has come up in Web3. And we really think you'll like the people and they'll like you. And I was like, oh, no, I, I'm not a tech lawyer. I've never done this, right? Um, I started off life in financial services and then moved into the political sphere and then didn't see myself in, in tech at all. And they were like, there are no lawyers who can say that they're Web3 lawyers. So just go meet the people and see if you like it. And that was in November 2021. And I was like one month into my six-month break. And I realized, you know what? I really do want to be part of this and I need to be part of it now. So I actually cut that break short, only took three months off and started in January, 2022. So I'm about to have my one year anniversary. That's awesome. Well, happy anniversary. Uh, I just had my second year anniversary with uh, with Parity uh, a month or so ago. Um, so it's uh, it's great to be working with you. I'm curious really about um, your your life working with Tony Blair in, in the British Parliament. Uh, one quick question about that is like, did you encounter Web3 or blockchain in, in that sphere at all before coming? And, and can you tell us any about that? Like, how prepared are they? Or what are their thoughts like at that time? Actually, in the last 18 months, so from about 2019 until 2021, the Institute tripled in size. It basically got up to 500 people in 40 different countries. And part of that growth was driven by tech for development. So actually thinking about blockchain, thinking about uh, technology and how it can assist and promote growth in developing countries. So there had been a tech policy team that had been created within the Institute. And I think in 12 months, it went from something like three people to 40 people. And so a lot had been written about Web3 and how blockchain could be used by different governments in order to deliver different initiatives to their population. So I had been reading about it a bit, so I wasn't a complete novice. But most of that work was not with the British government, actually. It was mostly with governments in Africa and other, um, some in the Middle East, uh, some in Asia. Very cool. And despite neither of you really having a tech background, you now found yourself in the Web3 space working for Parity. So tell me what your experience is working for the legal team in a blockchain company. 
Um, I would say my experience is that it's a very interesting space to be in. It's challenging at times um, because there are not many laws and regulations at the moment. So it's still very early days. But yeah, I would say it's it's every day is different. Um, there are new challenges every day. And yeah, you always have to make sure to keep up to date with um uh, any regulatory developments and any news that are taking place in, in our space. So you need to be very open-minded and curious to learn new things, uh, for sure. And you definitely need to have some interest in technology and how it affects the legal sphere and the legal world. And uh, you also need to make an effort to understand technology, um, not only to read about it, but really make like a proactive effort to understand um, how it works. At the same time, we're handling many different things. Uh, we have uh, internal and external legal issues. Uh, we have to stay up to date with regulatory developments, legal developments. And yeah, as, as we all know, blockchain adoption is still at a very early stage. And so we just have to make sure that we follow all the development that is taking place and also see how um, different countries and regulators uh, engage with the new technology and how they make use of it. Awesome. Can you share with us a moment of like, ah, something that you were really taken aback by working in Parity and Web3 that you didn't experience in your previous work experience? I would say it's everyday challenges. Um, for example, like the recent FTX crash um, was like had, had a major impact on our industry. And it was very interesting to see how, how we navigate uh, through it. And also like some parity internal folks reached out to us and asked us about our opinion and how this will play out and how this will affect uh, the industry in general. And yeah, I think that was just something very interesting and challenging to see as it's like an unprecedented uh, case and an unprecedented situation. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, I, I, maybe we address the topic in, in, in society right now around gender issues. Um, what has your experience been working in an industry that has typically, stereotypically been male dominated? But uh, Chrissy, you've worked in like high level, sea level um, suite in this space. So give us some insight on, on what that's been like for you. When I took this job, I knew from researching the industry what the gender balance would likely be like. Um, and I saw that as a really positive opportunity because it's in my previous roles, I've always been second or third generation of woman coming through the ranks. And now I'm first generation and I'm also at that leadership level. So I felt it to be a wonderful opportunity and responsibility in order to be a role model. If you don't see yourself represented in any culture, then it's hard for others to want to come into that space as well. So I think representation is, is really important. So I felt like it was a privilege to be one of a very small group of women leaders in this space. I also wasn't intimidated by it. I mean, I started off my career in a corporate law firm, 
pre-financial crisis. I was in an investment bank, pre-financial crisis, during the financial crisis, helped with, um, you know, Barclays Capital and Lehman and all of that in my previous job, and then post-financial crisis. And then, obviously, in, in my latest role with Mr. Blair, you know, was working in some environments where, by law, um, sometimes women weren't supposed to be in the room making decisions. So, again, I felt like I had the tools at my disposal to hopefully make a positive impact. And I think, you know, the last 12 months have had its ups and downs. And I think as an industry, we still have quite a ways to go. I was looking at some of the statistics and still only 5% of um, crypto entrepreneurs and founders are female. Um, I think like 26%, and this is just crypto, so it's not Web3, 26% of the workforce now is female. And it's so new that we don't even have breakdowns about what jobs are those, you know, are those the devs, are those finance and legal, are those HR, it's too soon to tell. But I'm sure over the coming months, more and more data will become available. How do you feel parity does in terms of representation and including folks of all walks of life uh, in the company? What I have found most interesting about this industry, and I would put parity into this, and this might be a little bit controversial, but obviously the vision of Web3 is uh, being inclusive, right? But I have actually found over the last 12 months that unless you are up on your jargon, unless you engage in certain conversations in a particular way, you know, unless you're very careful to challenge in a really constructive way and be very careful with your words, it can have a very negative impact on some of the people who uh, you speak to in this world. So I find that interesting because it, it is a little bit internally inconsistent and in that, you know, if you don't entirely buy into the vision And I'm not saying this is me. These are things that I've, you know, witnessed. But if you don't entirely buy into the vision, if you're new to the world and you're asking questions like, what is a DAO? If you don't entirely understand how tokens work or, you know, how you actually uh, become a parachain. Not everybody in the community is as accepting as others. And, you know, belonging can sometimes be difficult. Now, on the flip side, there are some of the most amazing educators I've ever met in this space, like really phenomenal, take the time, really want to invest. I mean, look at the Polkadot Blockchain Academy and just one-on-one. So, you know, I think it's an interesting dichotomy. And I think many people need to learn how to navigate that. And I think also there's an open-mindedness from both sides, both newcomers into the industry and those who have been around for a while need to exhibit in equal measure. Awesome. Um, and the, the second follow-up question, you kind of touched on it a little bit uh, in that answer, was the jargon aspect. And you mentioned uh, the difference between uh, Web3 versus crypto. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are, if there is a, p- a particular legal kind of um, distinction between those two terms? So not currently, there is not a a legal distinction, but I think one of the things we also need to work on um, as a community is how we educate people about what we do and the differences between 
Web3, blockchain, metaverse, crypto, how they all work together, but can also be separate. And I think one of the things um, that is potentially an obstacle in our path is sometimes we operate with either a presumption of knowledge or around inside jokes. And I'll give you an example. So I was at uh, an event where there were some people from different governments and one of the legislators came up to me and said, Chrissy, how can I trust a group of people who can't even spell build or hold the right way? <laughs> and I had to laugh and, you know, and, and politely explain, you know, what the background and what that means and why it's used. And he was like, oh, but you know, immediately it begins to put up barriers to people. And especially when it's legislators, especially when it's people making the rules, the regulators, we need to engage. And I think that's where the legal team can be a really huge asset to the Web3 community. And we can help define these terms that we're talking about and help people understand them in a way that is not intimidating, because I think, again, the jargon can be very intimidating and, and act as a barrier. That's amazing. I love that story. I have a, a, a little quick similar one. This was around individual parachain launches. And um, I was trying to explain to one of my friends that are outside of the ecosystem. And they knew a little bit and like I was teaching them along the way. But I said this sentence that um, Corora is Akala on Kusama. And the look on their face was just like, <laughs> did you just speak English words to me? Like, it made complete sense to me, but <laughs> I sometimes uh, lose sight of how deep down the rabbit hole I am <laughs> and and coming back out to, to kind of explain and decode things. Yeah, I love decoding. We need to be great at decoding. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, let's talk about some of the other challenges that you folks experience as legal professionals in the blockchain space. Elisa. Yeah, so I think it's it's really important to have a, a working knowledge of the complex technology. And as Chrissy also mentioned, the terminology, yeah, just to make it more accessible to everyone and easier to digest, basically, because this is especially for us, it's necessary to um, assess like the risks and also legal complexities that are associated with these technologies or this technology, this particular one. And yeah, our goal is actually to identify these risks as accurately and timely as possible and also to mitigate them um, where possible. And just to name a few examples of, of the legal challenges uh, that we face, for example, like cybersecurity. Um, so in blockchain systems, uh, the majority of the processing is carried out by a concentrated number of nodes. And um, for example, if someone would like to attack um, this uh, and he's able to identify these nodes and target them, the ledger would be compromised. So this is like a legal risk that is associated with cybersecurity. Another one would be intellectual property. So any new software development um, has to be patented so that we as a company own the IP to the new technology. Another very important um, legal challenge or like legal topic is uh, related to blockchain technologies, data um, privacy. 
as you know, like data is, is uh, stored on the blockchain. And once it's been stored, uh, it cannot be deleted or altered. Um, at least this cannot be done easily. So this kind of conflicts, uh, for example, with the GDPR's uh, right to be forgotten. This is like another challenge uh, that we uh, think about, uh, that we uh, think about how we could address in the best way. And yeah, last but not least, uh, accountability as well. So one of the key questions, uh, especially for regulators, uh, when it comes to decentralized systems is uh, who should be held accountable for um, a breach of the law, uh, which is yeah especially um, difficult yeah in, in, in decentralized systems and, and decentralization in general. And yeah, I think the best uh, approach that, that we are taking to address these challenges um, is, as I already mentioned, like keeping up to date with all the regulatory developments and different approaches and um, also developments in different countries. Uh, for example, you have China, which outrightly prohibits cryptocurrencies. And then you have, on the other hand, uh, Switzerland, uh, which is a very crypto-friendly country. The main problem also is that we are facing in our industries also that there's no such thing as like a unified framework. And the current like regulatory framework uh, is still like quite patchy. So for like certain scenarios or concepts in the blockchain space, there are no like laws and um, governments are still struggling to, to understand the technology and therefore lagging also behind. Um, and I think a solution for this would be um, to just educate everyone and to make it more accessible to everyone. So yeah, we need better education. We need to make it more accessible. So yeah, that laws can be created in the right way and uh, everyone can be also protected in the space. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that it, it, it all comes down to education. Education is the key um, and finding a common language and teaching that common language so that we can all understand what uh, Karora is Akala on Kusama means. <laughs> I want to double back quickly to um, a couple of the the points that you mentioned, the the data privacy and accountability pieces, um, also through the lens of of regulators and um, Chrissy, also with your your government background. Um, something that I think about a lot is incorporating blockchain and that accountability piece uh, with government together. And and I'm curious, what are your thoughts ab about that? Do you think that governments will eventually embrace blockchain in an, a truly open and transparent way where they themselves, the, the politicians, can be held accountable because their actions are in some ways made completely transparent on the blockchain? I think it is um, a definite possibility. And I think there are so many use cases out there. I mean, particularly around voting, um, healthcare, even in the defense space, I mean, there's this really interesting, um, I mean, there's so many articles about this, that I think there, if there are incentives for governments to adopt this type of approach, and those incentives, I think, would come from the public, the public demanding it, the public demanding accountability. But first, the public need to understand why blockchain would enable this. So, yes, definitely. And I think there are small test cases that we could try out along the way to say, okay, yeah, you know, this is proof of concept. One example, 
that's come to me recently is from an organization that has gotten funding from UC Berkeley to do a diversity and inclusion playbook for Web3. And um, it's a women's group located in London, and um, they're being sponsored by a few corporates and also potentially some government entities. And they approached me because just through contacts to say, Chrissy, do you think this is something that could be a common good parachain? Like if we could take that diversity and inclusion playbook, telling people, you know, what factors you would need to look at in order to show, you know, objectively in a quantifiable way that you do have a diverse and inclusive environment. Um, is that something that could be on the blockchain? Is that something that could be a common good pair chain? And like, this is a very like hot off the press discussion. I haven't even had a chance to talk about it with anybody else, really. Um, so, uh, and I'm not saying that's the right thing. I'm just giving it as an example. I know a lot of people will be like, why do you need that? That seems ridiculous and it's too tribalistic. And, and I understand all the pros and cons. But, you know, the more kind of a proof of concept that we have that we could take to other organizations, departments, whatever it may be, the better uh, it could impact on everybody's lives. Yeah, I love that. And I'm I'm super hopeful. And what I'm seeing with um, the new OpenGov that is currently rolling out, it's uh, very encouraging to see um, so many more proposals and discussions happening around what the direction of the ecosystem is going to be, what the direction of Kusama and, and Polkadot will be. Um, and then you know, my, my brain goes wild and extrapolates to the future of like, why couldn't we run a government in, in a similar type of way? Um, and I think it's just like you said, like proof of concept and taking it step by step and education and, um, getting it out there. And eventually something major is going to happen. I think so. slowly, slowly, then all of a sudden. Exactly. I think you're exactly right. Let's talk about like some like more more tangibly, I guess, like how does parody uh, and our ecosystem in general benefit from your legal knowledge? I mentioned earlier that we could be an interpreter potentially between, you know, the 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 tech side, the devs, also particular approaches from a um, administrative perspective, if you want to call it that, that are really specific to what we do. And we can start to speak to different groups and educate them on what we do. And I think that's really important because it is a new way of doing business. It's a new technology, well, newish technology, but to a lot of people, it's very new. And it really requires well-qualified, informed technologically equipped lawyers to bridge that divide because as much as we may want this web3 vision of the world we're not there yet and we still have the laws of nation states that apply that we still have to navigate because we don't want to be in the ftx situation we don't want to be in the gemini and genesis situation we don't want to be in tornado cash situation we don't want those things to derail us and our momentum from what we want to achieve. And I think that's where the legal team can be really important advisors and partners. Yeah, that brings me to my next question is the concept of compliance. What does it actually mean for a project or a, a code base to be compliant? 
Yeah, that's a very difficult question. Um, well, mainly because there is no compliance playbook uh, or law book that has been developed yet. There are cases that are currently um, to be decided. For example, the tornado cash incident that happened in August last year, where the uh, US government sanctioned uh, and banned the cryptocurrency mixer tornado cash. And uh, also the main developer has been arrested. Um, but yeah, this case, as I said, is, is also still to be decided. We need to wait and see uh, how this plays out. Uh, there are no precedents uh, at the moment that we can use for, for these cases. So yeah, we have to wait for the outcome of this case, for example, which, which is a very vital case and that might also uh, set some principles that can be applied for future cases that are similar in this case, it's also vital to keep in mind uh, that there has been uh, a ruling by the U.S. court that was decided previously, and uh, they have recognized code as speech, and therefore code uh, is protected by the First Amendment. But yeah, at the same time, I mean, this can be used as an argument, but it still has to be um looked uh, at with scrutiny and it has to be applied in, in the specific case. And also we have to keep in mind or see if the court distinguishes between uh, creating the code and using this code for criminal activities, which has been done in this case, which are yeah, two very different things. So interesting. Um, specifically in this in this instance, I'm curious. So the U.S. is was the kind of spearhead for for this and imposing these sanctions. But as I understand it, the Tornado Cash developer was arrested by the Dutch authorities. So was this a like a joint effort between U.S. and and the Dutch folks, or were these completely separated kind of incidences? The Tornado Cash developer was um, located in the Netherlands. That's why he was arrested there. And um, the U.S. sanctions were imposed on the Tornado Cash mixer as such. So the tool was sanctioned and the arrest uh, the arrest was made in the Netherlands um, because the developer was, was located there at the time. Maybe Chrissy can help out with this one. <laughs> I think this is where... We will have to wait to see as the facts emerge. It's not entirely clear yet. There haven't been a lot of specific statements made. I think what is interesting is that obviously the sanctions were put in place by the U.S. Clearly, the Dutch authorities were watching that. And very quickly after um, those sanctions were released, the developer was arrested. And, you know, that would have taken some coordination. And, you know, he's being charged with facilitating money laundering, amongst other things. So that's the, the criminal activity. Um, and I think this year will be very, very telling, as Elisa said, and we'll get a better of I idea of all the facts. Um, also, you know, you can't say that there won't be other people implicated. And they have reserved the right, both the Dutch authorities and the U.S. authorities, to look into this further. So... It's watch to see what happens, and that shouldn't destabilize people or scare people. You know, we we would just encourage people to continue as they are, and your legal team is here to help you if you have any questions um, or any concerns. And we have all the backup we need from external 
partners and uh, we will be able to help if you have questions or should anything arise. And I think that's the most important thing. We're here to help. We're here to support, uh, whether it's the basic or the more complicated. We also are going to be having a regular legal call where anybody can dial in. So again, that will be another forum for questions if people want to as these facts emerge, if they want to listen to us debating them and analyzing them, they're welcome to join. That's amazing. I think that's going to be a really, really uh, positive resource for the ecosystem. And um, I've got a question already that maybe you can illuminate. What does open source licensing mean? And does that protect uh, me as a coder uh, from from being arrested now um, because my, my code's being used for, for something nefarious that maybe I didn't even intend to happen. But, you know, I wrote the code, I open sourced it, and now it's free for anyone to use. What does that mean? And does that provide any kind of protection? So I think that is a great question, very on topic. Uh, I think maybe to answer it, I should go back to basics. And I imagine people listening will be much more sophisticated and knowledgeable in the inner workings of a CLA than I am. Uh, But, you know, I can certainly explain the legal approach. And I think to set the stage is important to kind of answer the question. So the first thing to remember is that by default, any code that is created by an individual or an organization has an exclusive copyright to that individual or organization, right? So if you make your GitHub repo public, that's not enough to make the code open source. And I think that's really important uh, point to clarify. So to actually make that code open source, you need to put in place a license. And that's what turns that code into an open source component. Again, this is purely from a legal perspective, right? And that license, that open source license, is a legal and binding contract between the author of the code and the user of the code. So there are literally hundreds of different open source licenses out there. You know, people will be familiar with MIT, Apache, GPL is what we use at Parity, and there are so many others. But, you know, that is the inherent approach and kind of fundamental concept. And as part of that, we say, don't do anything wrong with it. (laughs) But if you're the one writing the code and doing something criminal with it, then obviously you lose all protection. Right. So there's a fine balance here that, you know, you'd have to analyze on a case by case basis. But hopefully those fundamentals help explain a little bit of the approach. Cool. So I might be a manufacturer of a hammer and I might sell that hammer. But what the person that buys the hammer does with the hammer, they're responsible. But if I use the hammer to do something illegal, then I'm still responsible. Exactly. Okay, I think I got it. Yeah. All right. What are some of the benefits from open source licensing? It's community driven. It leads for faster development. It's decentralized. It's flexible. It's generally cost effective, although there's a little bit of debate on that. And, you know, it's reliable. Now, whether it's secure, again, is another question. I think that sometimes uh, could be a disadvantage because obviously the code's out there and people can exploit 
everything that they see. But, you know, those are some of the benefits. And obviously, that's why it's such a central part of the Web3 philosophy. And um, I think it's interesting, actually, to compare open source software versus free software. Sometimes these concepts uh, get lost. So uh, Richard Stallman, obviously, is um, he's one of the gurus in this area. And he actually has a, a slightly different view of open source. So he feels like open source software is focused solely on the availability of the source code. So how authors and users use the code, right? How they modify it, how they share it. But ultimately, it's about sharing the code. Whereas he advocates for free software, because free software is about the freedom to use. It's about freedom and justice, as he defines it. And so it's interesting to see that there's a debate on this particular point. That goes more into the philosophical area, and certainly, I'm sure, could be a whole nother podcast. Um, but, you know, I feel like sometimes open source and free software are conflated. And whether that's a good or a bad thing, I'm not, you know, I don't have an opinion either way. But I just thought it was an interesting point to set out there, especially because the Web3 vision is so focused on individuals and those individual rights and freedoms. Absolutely. Yeah. I think another one I would add to the list is the the topic we talked about earlier is um, as transparency. Like we want to see the code. We want to know that it is going to do what you say it's going to do. And we want to verify. We want to, we don't want to trust. We want to verify. And as Gav says, less trust, more truth. And so let's talk about what the, the flip side of that is. Are there disadvantages to open source licensing? I think one of the disadvantages is that there are so many open source uh, license choices out there that they're not always compatible. And so it sometimes can make everyone's jobs a little bit harder. I mean, obviously, within Parity, we have a, a larger legal team and we can, you know, we're just running an open source housekeeping exercise right now, kicking the tires on everything, our CLA bot, it all. Right. But not every member of the ecosystem will have a legal team like that. And certainly individuals won't necessarily have that legal support. So if there are, you know, hundreds of different licenses you have to look at, that, that can be really difficult to navigate. Not everybody is um, into the commercial side, um, but, you know, certainly with open source, it limits sometimes the money you could make from that if you are wanting to make money. And then one of the other things we talked about is security. Uh, being transparent means your front door is open and people can come in. Um, and sometimes someone may do something you did not expect. Uh, yes, the the ongoing battle between the white hat and black hat hackers. Who's going to come forward and benevolently let us know that there is a bug in our code or who is going to come forward and exploit it? That is a, an ongoing debate. But in general, I, I've heard that the open source licensing leads to more secure uh, code for that reason, because we can we can have more eyeballs kind of uh, on it to to point out the the pitfalls. Bug bounties help, too. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Um, jumping back quickly to open source licensing, it is kind of um, a staple in the blockchain space. Like we 
tend to shy away from projects that aren't open sourced um, or, or demand that they open source as soon as possible. Um, but what else can be said about how open source licensing is related to the crypto blockchain space? I think it is fundamental to what we do. Um, I think that the way our space has approached open source is helping influence how other spaces look at it. There was a really interesting article I was reading about how not just Web2, but a lot of corporations are looking at how fast things develop in this space, how much information is shared, and basically the global network of creative, talented, and super knowledgeable pioneering people, how they collaborate. And I think it was something like 96% of these companies as part of, and I think it was Forbes or might have been McKinsey, of those companies that were interviewed thought that they would be going more and more into the open source space in the future. And I thought that was a really positive thing to come from the blockchain space um, as acting as leaders in this area. And I think the more we do and the more we live our values, the better that message is. Impacting the world in many ways. I love it. You mentioned earlier that um, Polkadot Kusama operate under the GPL license. Can you expand on that? Like what, what does that actually mean? What is the GPL license? So it's the general public license. Actually, Richard Stallman, who I referenced earlier, was part of the inception of this general public license. Um, there are two versions of it, version two and version three. Um, <laughs> and I was not around when the decision was made within Parity that this was the licensing approach that we wanted to adopt but I do know from the historical records of people who were here back in the day that actually there was, you know, a lot of discussion about the license that we would adopt. And GPL, again, we felt reflected our values the best. So we thought it was most compatible with what we wanted to achieve. And, um, you know, there's also MIT and Apache and others. And um, I must admit um, I would want to get one of my colleagues who uh, lives and breathes this on a day-to-day -day basis to go into the, you know, nuts and bolts. But um, GPL definitely, I think, was the best fit for us. If I, as a non-legal person, wanted to improve my legal knowledge, like if I wanted to learn about GPL or any of the other kind of open source licensing contracts, I guess they are, um, how would I do that? So first of all, there are a lot of resources out there these days. Uh, so you can feel quickly like overwhelmed. I think in general, if you want to broaden your knowledge, your legal knowledge in, in the blockchain space, um, it's essential to first familiarize yourself with the main uh, regulatory bodies um, that shape legislation in our space. Uh, for example, the SEC uh, or the European Commission, um, which has brought forward the Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation in September 2020, and which is uh, to be applicable from 2024. 
And yeah, we just have to keep in mind in general that lawmaking is different from from one country to another. Um, so that's just a general understanding that you, that you need to have. Um, and just knowing also, as I've mentioned previously, that there is no unified framework yet. So it's good um, to keep up to date with the rules in different jurisdictions and the development, to do a lot of research and reading. Um, and I would also recommend following um, well-known crypto news outlets and subscribing to newsletters that have uh, specific sections that are devoted to regulatory updates. For example, I can recommend the Cointelegraph's law news section or the Coindesk's policy section. And uh, yeah, as Christy mentioned um, previously, we have uh, this upcoming legal team AMA where anyone can ask questions. We're happy to respond to anything. There are no such thing as stupid questions. And um, yeah, it's a good way to uh, parity internal folks to get a better understanding of, of what we're actually doing. And also to discuss um, yeah, any important news regulatory related developments that they want to talk to us about. Very cool. I imagine that uh, a lot of the questions in the very first session are going to center around the epic news of dot becoming or morphing is the word uh, morphing into software and is not a security. Do you want to give us a, a like a maybe like a preamble, a little snippet of what the answer or to to that might be? Like, can you explain that in your own words in like a TLDR kind of thing? I think the best person to explain it would be Daniel Schoenberger. He's the general counsel of the Web Three Foundation. And as the issuer of DOT, they have been working for three years tirelessly um, as a team and also with outside advisors to engage with a variety of regulators. Um, and the SEC being one of the ones that they engaged with on a very regular basis over the last three years. So Daniel and uh, the team, Angie and Josh, have been uh, doing the circuit since the end of last year, explaining how Web3 Foundation made this uh, call. Obviously, there's not a no action letter in place, but there is a, you know, nine part framework that's out there. There is a lot of information about the path that the Web3 Foundation chose to follow and why they felt like they had to follow it back then and while not, why now was the right time to announce. So I think we will provide you with a link to an excellent podcast that they recently did that goes into quite a bit of depth, but certainly they feel very confident in their position and we wholly support them as a legal team and also just generally as parity. Very cool. Yeah, we'll make sure to have that link to um, Daniel's podcast in the show notes so that folks can find that. Um, yeah, super, super deep kind of topic and potentially has massive implications. Um, so I'm excited. Um, okay, we're coming up towards the end here, but I've got a few more questions that I want to ask you. Uh, I'm curious if you're aware of other projects in the Web3 space having legal teams as amazing as you folks are, and if you communicate at all, is there any kind of crosstalk? Do you have any 
buddy lawyers in other uh, projects. Yeah, well, we we try to connect with as many legal teams um, in in our space as possible, just to exchange views and opinions, um, to discuss like news such as the tornado cash incident or the FTX uh, crash. Um, I think it's just very interesting and also inspiring to hear from um, other legal teams and also how they address certain challenges. Um, so, yeah, that's that, that's definitely something we do. We, we have um, fortnightly calls with the Engine legal team, the Kilt legal team and the Web3 Foundation legal team. And I would love to invite anyone else who might be listening to join that uh cross-ecosystem legal chat that we have, because we are trying to um, expand the group who exchanges ideas and uh, bandies about these difficult topics that Elisa was describing. So open invitation. That is awesome. I would be so uh, happy with myself if somehow we created a larger cross-legal team community just from that, that call to action right there. So if you're listening to this and you know someone in that in a legal team, pass this on to them um, and let's make this happen. That sounds amazing. On the topic of talking with parachain legal teams um, and also coming back to what we were talking about earlier about the user of the software being responsible for the outcomes. So Polkadot is the underlying technology and then parachains use that technology. So they're kind of using our technology. So how, uh, from a legal perspective, is Polkadot, the ecosystem, um, responsible for what parachains do? I would say from a legal perspective, we wouldn't want to take any responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We wouldn't want to take responsibility, but our are we responsible by any kind of by proxy? Well, this is where, I mean, it's an interesting point. And actually, um, you know, I'm quite values driven. And um, certainly there have been instances where there have been regulatory changes, which we thought might impact members of the ecosystem. And I have felt a responsibility to reach out to see, did they need any support? I can't provide legal advice, but can we provide some sort of support or point them to external advisors who might be able to support them better? And we're definitely open to that, but it's it's obviously a fine line. I, I can't provide them with legal advice as much as I might want to, but I can point them in the right direction. And so I do feel quite strongly because I support and believe in the ecosystem so much that where we do have expertise, uh, that we we should be supporting each other as we can within the limits of, you know, requirements that are imposed upon us. Absolutely. Uh, my next question is, have you heard of the phrase code is law? And what are your thoughts about code is law? If you've heard of it? I've heard of it. I've had some interesting conversations about this. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it is it's really important to have these types of philosophies and conversations and principles in place. And I think what we need to be doing is kind of taking the best of both worlds, code is law and also existing kind of rule of law and trying to build something new and exciting. Um, you don't want to ignore history, 
you, you can't ignore history. We should be learning from history, but we should be equally innovative in the legal space as we are in the tech space. And I, that's what attracted me to this area and to the people that we work with and to the possibility in the future. And it's building and innovating, even with boring legal concepts. <laughs> yeah, so a, a follow-up to that um, would be, we have this concept of smart contracts now kind of um, brought onto the scene by Ethereum and the EVM. And, and we have our own versions of smart contracts in the Polkadot ecosystem. Is there any precedent of a smart contract being used in a, a legal court proceeding as evidence or a, a, in a legal binding kind of way? In general, as long as the smart contract follows the basic rules of contractual arrangements, right? So as long as they aren't like wildly off, like different jurisdictions will have different um, components of what creates a contract. But, you know, I don't want to get into that jurisdictional level analysis. But as long as it follows the basic rules of contracting, it should be enforceable, right? Now, there's all kinds of interesting, it's really interesting to look at the Okidao case and, um, you know, how certain legal concepts are being imported into what we do uh, in order to enforce existing laws. So my point in the, the connection there is smart contracts, you know, they say, well, they have these basic components, they're enforceable. You look at the Okidao situation, the CFTC basically um, brought action against uh, the DAO and actually served people via the help bot because they considered the DAO to be an unincorporated association under California law. Now that's where you would say a DAO doesn't necessarily meet those basic tenets of an unincorporated association, but it's actually a point of discussion, right? So this is another area going back to what Elisa said. These are the first time a lot of these concepts are coming up and regulators and people who feel aggrieved are going to be reaching out for those basic concepts so that they can seek some sort of justice in their mind, right? Mm. Be regulated. So I think when we are talking about how these concepts are coming together, it's always important to remember who is going to be looking to bringing an enforcement action, who is going to be looking towards getting compensated and what kind of concepts are they going to grasp onto in order to be compensated in whatever way they think is appropriate. I completely agree with, uh, with what Christy has said. Um, I think we also need to look at whether we can apply traditional concepts of contract law to such such a smart contract or whether we have to wait for new laws to come into place that would apply to such contracts. Um, yeah, just seeing yeah whether we can use existing concepts and theories or yeah whether we need to, to wait and see how uh, it will develop and whether there will be new concepts that will specifically apply to smart contracts and the... Um, specific risks and um, complexities around it. That totally makes sense. And it also kind of sounds like as um, as all of these worlds are kind of converging, that 
lawyers, people with legal background might need to learn a little bit more technology, maybe some coding, how to write smart contracts. And likewise, coders might need to learn a little bit more about the legal ramifications of what they're creating, what they're writing and putting out into the world. Uh, Jordan, I asked one of our devs the other day, I was like, would you take a coding Padawan? (laughs) (laughs) Are you learning to code now, Chrissy? Well, I've asked. Um, wow. Yeah, I'd like to. I, I, I totally agree 100% with what you just said. Like, I should know how to code, right? So I can appreciate some of the complexities. So yeah, so I've I've made a request. We'll see if it's um, if it's granted. Oh, Dawn, you're right. <laughs> if, I'm, if, I'm deemed, if I'm deemed worthy. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I'm I'm very excited to see your first smart contract. Uh, <laughs> I'll send it to you for review. <laughs> nice, nice. I've exhausted all of my questions, but I may have missed something that you really wanted to talk about. Is there anything that you'd like to add or leave folks with um, before we sign off? I mean, the one thing Elisa and I were talking about earlier is being curious. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like the legal team is curious. We're yeah. interested. We want to know. Like, you know, so when when we ask questions you know, it comes from a place of curiosity. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And we want people to feel that and that we really do believe in what they're building. Yeah. Right. And want to be part of that as much as we can and support it. Yeah, exactly. That curiosity is, is really coming from our own personal interests. And we really want to be part of it. And um, a lot of legal folks in our team want to learn how to code, for example, um, just to to just feel a bit more included and also to understand the technology and to, uh, yeah, to see what complexities are faced as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us and giving us uh, an insight into your wonderful legal knowledge and how it pertains to Parity and the Polkadot ecosystem. Uh, this has been illuminating, and I'm excited to tune into the open legal calls that you guys are having. I'm excited to see the smart contracts you're going to develop. Um, and I need to go and listen to the podcast about the polka dot morphing. This has been great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us this week on Relay Chain. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the subjects we talked about today. So please reach out to us on Twitter at RelayChain or by email podcast at Parity.io. The team at Parity has some of the brightest minds working towards building a robust and inclusive ecosystem that puts power back into the hands of its community members. With cross-chain communication as a primary goal, we aim to break down the tribalistic barriers that have formed throughout the blockchain industry. If you want to learn more about what we're building, or if you want to join our team, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io slash newsletter. The content presented on RelayChain is not financial or investment advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to support any specific project. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the podcast guests and hosts and are not necessarily shared by Parity Technologies or Web3 Foundation, who do not endorse or guarantee the accuracy of the information provided.